we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week's episode is a recap of what happened in 2022. There's a lot of specifics we're going to be talking about with three of our analysts here, Jessica Vaughn, Art Arthur, and John Fury. But I think the theme of a lot of it is that this administration is trying to make an end run around immigration law, trying to basically freelance an executive immigration policy that's actually contrary to the mandates in federal law. And we're seeing that in the border. We're seeing that in interior matters. We're seeing it in legal immigration. We're seeing that everywhere. And it seems to me that's a big theme. And obviously, one of the big places we're seeing that is at the border. Art, if you could just sort of kind of introduce briefly what it is, what were the big things that happened at the border this year, and then we'll you know throw it to the whole group. Well, I think the biggest thing that we saw at the uh, southwest border this year, Mark, was just the sheer numbers. In FY 2022, which ended on September the 30th, Border Patrol apprehended more than 2.2 million illegal entrants. That's a brand new record. It actually was about 25% higher than the prior record, which was set in FY 2021. But even those numbers don't tell the full story because in addition to you know those 2.2 million plus illegal migrants that we had at the southwest border, Border Patrol estimates that an additional 599,000 other migrants evaded Border Patrol agents and uh, made their way into the United States. Those are known colloquially as gotaways. As the centers discussed, as I've discussed in the past, the main reason why we're seeing those large numbers of people has to do with the fact that the Biden administration, you know, reversed Trump administration border policies that had brought a modicum of security to the southwest border. And also, and as importantly, it's also rejected deterring illegal entrants as a border policy. Yeah, uh, explicitly, explicitly distancing themselves from the idea of even deterring illegal crossings. Yeah. And back on May the 1st, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was asked by Brett Baer on Fox News Sunday whether the objective of the Biden administration was to limit, significantly limit, the number of aliens entering the United States illegally. And, you know, Mayorkas answered very straightforward. He said, the objective of this administration is to provide safe, orderly, and legal pathways for individuals to access the immigration system. And that goes to the point that you made at the outset. This is a complete end run around the legal limits that Congress has set on immigration to the United States. And again, those are, you know, those limits aren't exactly strict. We're not saying, you know, only 275,000 people a year could enter or 50,000 people a year. 
The current law allows for more than a million people to enter the United States legally every year, not counting tens of millions of non-immigrants. So the reason that we have a problem at the southwest border is because the Biden administration does not want to deter anybody from entering. Now, the one thing that has enabled Border Patrol agents to be able to do anything are public health orders issued by CDC beginning in March of 2020. Those Title 42 orders, as they're known, directs, doesn't even allow, directs DHS to expel all foreign nationals coming to the United States. But in probably one of the biggest news items at the border in the past 10 years, a federal judge in D.C., Emmett Sullivan, has ordered DHS to end and CDC to end Title 42 on December the 21st, at which point DHS estimates that anywhere between 12,000 and 18,000 migrants will enter illegally every day. And that's up from an already unsustainable level of 7,000. By the time you're hearing this, that should have happened already, although we'll see. I actually think that it's going to be postponed. The D.C. Circuit Court, the Appeals Court, is getting desperate calls from uh, the administration saying, please, please give us a break. We don't want this to happen right before Christmas. Now, the, obviously, the disaster at the border has been going on for almost two years now. But in this year, one thing that really was interesting was the response of some of these states, of Arizona, of Texas, of Florida. And uh, Jessica, you're a former Massachusetts resident. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on Governor DeSantis, Florida Governor DeSantis, flying illegal border crossers up to Martha's Vineyard in order to basically, you know, make the media cover this story. Yes, thanks, Mark. This has been one of the most interesting developments during the year was the efforts by not only Florida, but also Texas and to, and to some extent Arizona to share the, share the wealth, share the burden of this massive influx of illegal migrants. And they started transporting, usually, I guess, always by bus, some of the illegal arrivals up to places that had in the past described themselves as sanctuaries for all immigrants, legal and illegal, including not only Massachusetts, but also New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Chicago, getting migrants to voluntarily get on a bus paid for by those states to transport them away from this area. And yes, it was a somewhat of a political stunt. I would have to say a pretty brilliant one. Yeah, but I mean, politics is partly stunts anyway. I mean, that's not even necessarily right. a derogatory term in this context. Right. But also, it really sparked a discussion about the problems that this influx is causing for the not only the border states, but also the receiving communities. Because the mayors of D.C. and New York and the sheltered residents of Martha's Vineyard <laughs> all suddenly, you know, went into panic mode and said, you know, this is a huge problem for us. Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to eat? How are they going to take care of themselves? We can't handle this. We need more money. And this is in response to like five minutes worth of people crossing the southwest right. border, too. Right, right. So it did spark a discussion. It did annoy the White House because this was not the reaction they had expected. And it, it turned out that the Biden administration has been sending way, way more than the states 
state governments had been sending to these places and, you know, got people talking about the problems created with this influx and the cost of this influx that, you know, turned out to be pretty healthy, actually. And I I do think, you know, their reaction kind of played right into the hands of the Republican governors that wanted people to start talking about these issues. I mean, that was the point after all. I mean, all together, all of the people who have been bussed by El Paso and by the state of Texas and the state of Arizona and the state of Florida, all of them adds up to like two days worth of people at the border anyway. So it's not like it's a solution. It's a political strategy to try to develop a solution. Right. And it sparked all kinds of interesting and sometimes amusing things that happened when these migrants arrived in Martha's Vineyard off season where, you know, (laughs) where lots of housing is going unused. The residents basically fed them and quickly had them removed to the mainland of Cape Cod. They called the so army. They, they called the army to. to have them remove them to, to, <laughs> from Martha's Vineyard. It was hilarious. I want to bring uh, John in here because federal law says that everybody caught at the border illegally crossing is supposed to be detained the entire time that their proceedings are underway. And obviously, the administration isn't doing that. A lot of the people they are releasing into the country are not detained, but they're held under something called alternatives to detention, which is, you know, it's not detaining them, but supposedly meeting the legal requirement. So there's been a lot of developments in that over the last year. And I think that's something that's important, but not really covered as much. John, what's been going on with this so-called ATD, Alternatives to Detention Issue. Well, the ultimate goal of this administration, of course, is to gut immigration enforcement however they can. And they've essentially abolished ICE without abolishing ICE. Essentially. We've seen arrests come down dramatically. We've seen removals come down dramatically. We've seen removals of criminal aliens go down dramatically. They're canceling thousands and thousands of pending immigration cases. The political appointee running ICE's legal division is just canceling cases left and right because they don't fit their so-called priorities. But in the detention sphere, they're also reducing the number of people who are detained. At our height, we had somewhere around 50,000 or more. During the Trump administration. During the Trump administration. When you were at ICE. Correct. We had about 50,000 people or more detained. And this was the worst thing ever, according to the Democrats on the Hill, was an extremely high number. Well, it's not much of anything compared to the millions and millions of people who are here illegally who need to be arrested and removed. We have millions of people with final orders as it is that should be filling detention space and then quickly returned home. I mentioned this to one of our directors. I said, we should be asking for more than just 50,000. And his response was, John, I can use 100,000 detention beds, but I just need the space, the locations, and the staff to properly run them. Right. But is Congress even considering funding more ICE officers, more detention space? Maybe the next Congress will. But this administration currently is not just cutting back on detention. In fact, the latest news out of the Daily Caller is that they've cut back their ask for detention in the next budget even further, I think down to 25,000 people. And this is at the same time they're complaining they don't have detention space. That's why they have to do these alternatives like ankle bracelets and what have you. And at the same time, they're asking for less detention space. Yes. So we had 34,000 beds this past year down to 25,000 this most recent year. Now there are only 29,000 people detained currently, but their goal is ultimately to abolish that. And in fact, One thing that was reported in the past couple of weeks was a closed-door meeting at ICE called the Alternatives to Detention Symposium, which they invited a whole bunch of open-border NGOs. The Daily Caller has a piece on this. 
many of these groups are explicitly anti-ICE, and yet they're getting invited by ICE's political appointees to come uh, spend Fox, some time with Fox them. Fox is in the hen house. And their whole purpose of this meeting was to point out how horrific detention is, why it has to go away, and why we have to move towards ATD alternatives to detention. Now, there are various forms of ATD. The one people think about the most are the ankle braces, the GPS positioning right. bracelets. But those, of course, now are unacceptable to the open border, the NGO activist crowd. Those look too criminal in their minds. And so what they're trying to move towards and are moving towards is a case management style system of non-detention. Where they call in, basically, or some such thing like that, to check in periodically. But it's even worse, because what they're creating is a whole infrastructure around case management, wraparound services, as they call them. Basically, they're trying to replicate what they have for the refugee program with oh, the millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's almost like welfare. They're turning ICE alternatives to detention into kind of a welfare program? Well, it's a social services type right. program with access to attorneys, helping them access social benefits, welfare benefits, and so forth, even so much as um, you know, reintegration services. If they grew up, lived most of their life in Honduras, but they haven't been there in a couple of years, we need to help reintroduce them to their home country. Well, that's a huge cost, but it's a huge, it's a huge win for the NGO groups that want to, again, replicate what industry exists over the refugee resettlement area, which of course in refugee resettlement, in that case, we are talking about people who are coming here, probably not going to be going home anytime soon. Right. Whereas these people, they're, most of them are going to have to be removed. They're not going to have legitimate cases, but the goal. Well, 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 well. They're supposed to be removed. <laughs> I think the, what you're describing here is based on the assumption that they will never be removed. That's right. And so their goal is to, is to put this into the hands of a non-ICE entity, basically at CRCL, the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Office up at DHS. Working the kind in, of in-house ACLU at, at the DHS, right? Working hand-in-hand with the NGOs to take ICE officers and other for-profit entities like GEO, for example, which currently oversees detention and ATD out of the equation altogether. Interesting. There's actually more at the border. I mean, I wanted to hit not just on sort of general issues, but specific things that happen at the border. And Art, there are two things that were notable at the border were the number of people on the terror watch list who crossed, which was much larger than usual, and the significant number of deaths at the border as well, because as border crossings go up, inevitably, the number of people who tragically die in the process go up. Yeah, and the numbers tell the story. Remember, again, DHS estimates that there were about 599,000 Godaways. Those are people who didn't turn themselves into Border Patrol agents and who weren't arrested. If I could interrupt a minute, remember, the interesting thing about Godaways is not that that's all the people who eluded the Border Patrol. Those are the people that the Border Patrol has some awareness of who eluded them. They're like the known unknowns, as Rumsfeld would have said. There's unknown unknowns, people that the Border Patrol never got any pictures of or a sensor hit or a footprint or something who have to have gotten in. So in a sense, the total gotaways is even bigger than the huge number that you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. And in that population of 599,000 people plus, we don't know why they came here, but they're not the kind of people who want to turn themselves into Border Patrol even a Border Patrol laboring under the restrictions that we've talked about where the Biden administration doesn't want to detain them, wants to release them. 
into the United States. Notwithstanding all of that, Border Patrol agents still apprehended 98 aliens on the terror watch list in FY 2022. That is almost four times as many as they had apprehended in the prior five fiscal years. I worked with the 9-11 committee when I was on Capitol Hill. I'm very familiar with the 9-11 committee report. In fact, on the Hill, George Fishman, who's also a colleague of mine here at the center, and I implemented many of the recommendations. And, you know, the 9-11 committee report focused on how important the border is to national security. And yet the Biden administration is probably staffed by people who don't remember 9-11, who don't understand the vulnerabilities that wide open border has. When you talk about 600,000 people plus who have managed to elude Border Patrol agents, those are the people who Rodney Scott, Biden's first Border Patrol chief, talked about in a letter that he had sent on September 11th, 2021 to Senate leadership when he was talking about the huge vulnerabilities that this insecure border is creating from a national security standpoint. Used to be traditionally in the past, Mark, and you know, you, John, and I have been around long enough to remember that terrorists would come into the United States legally, but fraudulently. They would exploit student visas, or they would land at the airport and exploit the asylum system. And we have a whole report on that called The Open Door, done by our colleague Stephen Camerata in the wake of 9-11, where we go through I forget how many it is, 39 people, something like that, yeah. and actually went in detail. This person came in at the airport with fake documents. This person came in with a student visa, et cetera. So this is something we've documented, but these guys are just walking across. Yeah. And the 98 are the ones who actually got caught by the Border Patrol. Yeah, and that it's astounding that the number was, one, it's scary, but two, it's astounding that the number that were apprehended was so high. Right now, only about you know 10% of Border Patrol resources are going toward actually patrolling the border. About 90% are going to transportation, processing, care, and feeding of migrants. And even then, at 10%, Border Patrol agents were still able to apprehend 98 migrants. And again, this is you know a, a subject that I know a lot about. I testified before the 99 committee headed up by Ambassador Bremer the National Terrorism Committee, which obviously didn't work. I was the chief terrorist prosecutor for the former INS, and I was staff director for the National Security Subcommittee at House Oversight and Government Reform. I mean, I know terrorists because I've had to deal with them so the American people don't have to. And I can tell you right now the vulnerability that this creates, talking to many of my colleagues who are still in the national security space, we're terrified. It really is a question of when, not if. Right. Yeah. Another thing that's specifically related to the border that we saw a lot more in this past year is human trafficking. And the first thing to point out is that for a lot of people, they, they confuse or conflate trafficking with smuggling. Smuggling is when you're a willing participant in the conspiracy. Trafficking is when you're somehow coerced or tricked or what have you. And there actually is kind of a overlap or a blurry distinction there. But Jessica, if you wanted to talk about the trafficking issue, you helped organize a conference, a university conference in Texas this year. What have we seen in the trafficking issue over this past year? Well, it's really concerning. And I think it's one of the most underreported aspects of the border crisis. And also one of the most serious aspects is the increase in human trafficking. And 
the way that the Biden border policies of catch and release incentivize it and facilitate the trafficking. And you're right, most of the typical cases we see are involve both smuggling and trafficking. Now, because there is such a huge incentive for people to come take advantage of the policies, the smugglers who are making money, you know, right and left more than ever before, basically will tell prospective illegal migrants that all they have to do is get to the United States and then they will set them up with employment. And all they need to do is really make a down payment on the smuggling fee. Let's say if they're charging $10,000, the illegal alien will have paid something like $2,2500 to get across the border. And then they are set up with illegal employment. And the smugglers tell them that they need to pay off the rest of their debt. And so they need to live in a certain place, work in a certain place. It always involves really long hours working seven days a week in horrific conditions, often abused and exploited by an employer. Sometimes the employer has a direct link to the smugglers, and it really is a forced labor situation. That debt can never be paid off. These migrants, if they're lucky, they're only threatened and held in indentured labor, but many of them are actually abused or trafficked out for other disgusting things like sex trafficking and so on. Sometimes these are adults working in agriculture, manufacturing restaurants. Sometimes it's teens. A lot of times it's kids who enter as unaccompanied minors because the smugglers convince their parents that they should turn the kids over to the smugglers and the smugglers will get them into schools in the United States and the child will have a better life. But in fact, they're being put into forced labor and exploited and abused in various ways. It's really quite sickening. It's happening more than ever before. A friend of mine who's a sheriff in Texas along one of the trafficking routes, not right at the border, but in the interior, said that a couple years ago, he and his officers, they used to see maybe one or two trafficking cases a year. Last year, they saw 77 cases of this. So it is exploding. It's happening not only with illegal migrants, but sometimes in the legal visa programs. And the authorities in these border agencies are, I don't think they're oblivious to it, but I think that they view this as a cost that they can keep under control. And, you know, it's just an unpleasant byproduct that is a sacrifice in favor of these more lenient policies where everyone gets to come in. Yeah, basically you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet is kind of the cynical way. Essentially, of but at, you know, yeah. we're talking about kids in a lot of yeah, these yeah. cases no, and yeah. it's it's really shameful that it has not gotten more attention. And the interesting thing is as we were talking about with some of Art's comments is that when you have this mass flow, you're going to have more deaths you're going to have more terrorist apprehensions. You're going to have more criminals coming across, and you're going to have more trafficking. In other words, this is sort of all of this is an inevitable consequence of this massive increase in the number of people coming across. Another thing that happened this year that I think that was of some consequence, it's worth discussing, is developments in DACA. There's a lawsuit that's likely to be decided sometime early next year, again, actually declaring DACA illegal. And that's one of the things that's generated some of the political activity during the lame duck. Art, if you could maybe tell us a little about just literally the sort of very top line 
Cliff Notes version of what's gone on with DACA this past year. Yeah. So Judge Andrew Hannon, district court judge down in Texas, has you know been hearing a case for years that involves the legality of DACA. And Judge Hannon had found DACA was illegal when it was created. It violates the APA and it violates the Immigration and Nationality Act. The DACA attorneys took that up to the Fifth Circuit. And in October, the Fifth Circuit concurred with Judge Hannon that DACA is illegal. Now, that's going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Of course, you know, we can remember a few years back, the Supreme Court heard a case called Regents versus DHS, in which an attempt by the Trump administration to end DACA was struck down by the Supreme Court on Administrative Procedure Act grounds. But it didn't get to whether DACA was ever created legally to begin with. Right. This coming case will actually look at that. And again, you know, the logic is sound. I don't know that the Supreme Court is going to concur on all grounds, but there was no authority for the Obama administration by memorandum, not even executive order, to create DACA. And so that's going to put Congress in a situation where they either have to grant an amnesty for the DACA population or, you know, leave it up to the Biden administration to deal with them. Uh, And I don't think that the Biden administration is going to deport them, but that'll be the threat that you hear. All of these kids are facing deportation. Now, remember, most of these aren't kids anymore. You know, these are people in their thirty, in their late 30s. No, early point. 40s even. Early yeah, 40s. the oldest one's 41, I think, now, or 42. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's what's going on at DACA. Again, the Supreme Court's probably getting a little tired of hearing immigration cases at this juncture, but this is one they're not going to be able to take a pass right. on. Can I add a couple more Please, just yeah, clarifications absolutely. on DACA just because we have the opportunity? Sure, sure. People on the Hill, I think, the Republicans who think that there needs to be some sort of fix for this, as if there's some sort of urgency. These people were here illegally beforehand. They're still here illegally with work permits. They'll be here illegally without work permits afterwards. Mm-hmm. Not the, much of an urgent issue. Right. Uh, Although but, this time they'll be able to have Social Security numbers well, now because they've gotten them. So uh, that's, anyway. That's right. But Art's right. You know, these, these people, uh, some of them are in their early 40s. They have to claim they entered before reaching age 16. There's no requirement that they prove that they were brought here. That's the talking point. They can come on their own volition. Parents might still be back in the home country. We don't, we don't know where they are. It's not even part of the application. There is zero educational attainment requirements. People on the Hill keep talking. People in the media keep saying that they're required to graduate from college. I read an article on the Hill.com years ago saying it's, it's for kids with good grades. No, there's literally nothing. All you have to do is enroll <laughs> in some doctors, sort of- They're lawyers. They're engineers. Course. What's your problem? And I'm sure there are some who are. Of course. But the reality is, as written, they simply have to be enrolled in some sort of educational type program, which might even be an ESL course that meets once on a Tuesday night for six weeks at the time they fill out the DACA application. They don't have to go. And in fact, the FAQs on the website say that. We don't care when you do your reapplication two years later, whether you're still going to class or you dropped out. My only point being that there's all these myths around DACA that if the GOP really wanted to do something about it, it should be consistent with what the American people have been sold as to what it is, not, not what it currently is. Yeah, obviously. Another thing that I thought was worth addressing is this issue of uh, some other ways that parole has been misused. I think that really is, as I said at the beginning, one of the big themes of this administration and of this past year. One of the ways it's been used is to let in a lot of the Ukrainian and Afghan people, especially this year in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, at the beginning earlier than the year. And it's been used in a whole bunch of ways, also in legal immigration contexts. Jessica, are there some 
specific developments in the, some of these guest worker or green card programs where parole has also been abused by this administration? Well, not so much, I don't think, in green card or visa programs. I, I think really the administration has embraced parole as a way to get around the fact that there are no legal avenues for all of these people that they want to right, right. allow to stay in the U.S. And it's, yes, it's Afghans, Ukrainians, also now Venezuelans. And there's talk of, from the administration, of expanding the Venezuelan parole program to pretty much anyone around the world who can get to a processing center that they want to set up overseas and have this migration happen almost in what they're, they're calling it a legal manner, but there's no authorization for this in the law, right. but basically set up entry programs where people can come and, you know, say, I, I want to come to the United States, and they wave a wand and say, okay, we're, we're going to put you on a bus and we're going to bring you into the United States. And for the many, many illegal aliens living here, they're also continuing to launder their status by expanding programs like temporary protected status. Right. Just recently, they redesignated Haiti, adding 100,000 more Haitians, most of whom who have crossed illegally over the border recently are now going to be able to get work permits. And, you know, it's, it's not just Haitians, it's Cameroonians. Ethiopia recently, Ethiopia got TPS. Basically, I mean, just for listeners, TPS, Temporary Protective Status, is supposed to be temporary way to allow the government to not deport somebody if their country's been hit by a hurricane, earthquake, there's a civil war. And what it's turned into is just one more way of the executive branch ignoring the immigration law and just letting in anybody they legalizing in this sense, quasi-legalizing anybody they feel like. And for those who don't fit into TPS or parole, they're expanding existing visa programs like the, the U visa, which is supposed to be for crime victims, which they want to open it up to people who have complaints against their employer, their illegal employer. We have the special immigrant juvenile program that it's a path to a green card for a lot of these unaccompanied minors that has had very little oversight and little scrutiny or, you know, really any standards at all. So, you know, if they can think of a way to launder the status of uh, current or future illegal aliens, they're that's what they're going to do. And this is really replacing our refugee program. It's, I think, going to be a subject of oversight in the next Congress and, and potentially litigation as well. But is it really re replacing everything? Because in some sense, I would like to argue that, okay, we've added how many millions of people over the past couple of years? Right. Uh, we already had a system in place that provided permanent residency to about a million people a year. That's what the American people decided. That's our immigration system. Should we not count these as offsets to that? Should we not be right. demanding that we have a moratorium on the rest of these channels to make up for those? This immigration that apparently the Biden administration prefers. Right. Well, yeah. In other words, they're using it as a supplement to sort of have the existing regular legal immigration program continue anyway. And this allows them to massively increase immigration without anybody actually voting on it. Well, if they could manage all of it all at once, they would. But USCIS as an agency right now is so overwhelmed and mired in applications that they cannot get out of their own way. and. The administration knows this, and so they create these other pathways that exist, you know, and the refugee program is a perfect example. 
that Biden said he wanted to increase it to 100,000 this year, this current year that we're still in, but only 20,000 were able to be processed. Right. So hence, we have now special programs for Ukrainians and Venezuelans with so-called private sponsorship. Right. That essentially do the same thing, but don't let people in through the formal refugee program, just through these various ad hoc programs. Art, one of the things you've written about, and people talk about a lot, is drugs. And we don't do drugs here with this word immigration think tank, obviously, but there is a relation. What's the relation to the increase we're seeing in fentanyl and what have you, and what's going on with regular immigration at the border? That's an excellent question. And it's one of those things that, you know, soy descent intellectuals often poo-poo that there's any nexus between the situation at the border and the drug crisis that we're seeing in the United States. Back in April, CDC announced that more than 100,000 Americans had died in drug overdoses. This was, uh, you know, it's been spiking for the last couple of years, but, you know, this is an all-new time high in drug overdoses. And most of those people are overdosing on what are called synthetic opioids. The main synthetic opioid that they're dying of is fentanyl. About 10 years ago, fentanyl was a thing, but it wasn't really that big a thing. Precursor chemicals to make fentanyl are made in China. And for what it's worth, at that time, fentanyl was made in China and it was shipped into the United States through the U.S. Postal Service. The United States worked with the government of China to crack down on that postal shipment of drugs. And so consequently, the focus for taking those precursor chemicals and putting them together has shifted to Mexico. So that fentanyl that we're seeing coming into the United States is coming over the border from Mexico, running by the cartels, you know, be it Sinaloa or CNJG or the Gulf Cartel. But Art, don't we have a border patrol to patrol the border to keep people from crossing illegally? Well, if you go back to a statement that I made a few minutes ago, about 90% of all agents are off the line. And in fact, for what it's worth, the cartels are actually stage managing these large groups of migrants that are coming to the United States. So, you know, if you turn on Fox News and you see Bill Maluchin's reporting of 100, 200 people crossing in mass, plaza bosses down on the other side of the border working for the cartel are sending those people through because they know all the Border Patrol agents are going to have to go and respond to them. And that's going to create gaps in the line. Again, Chief Scott in his September 2021 letter to Senate leadership talked all about this. That's how they are moving those drugs into the United States. When those gaps are created, when those agents are pulled off the line and have to go to respond, it creates the gaps. They move the drugs through those gaps. Now, one of the things that you're going to hear is that, you know, most drugs come into the United States through the ports of entry. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. When you talk about Rumsfeld and the unknown unknowns, we don't know what we don't catch. But what I can tell you is that there are a lot better systems for catching drugs coming in through the ports. We have drug sniffing dogs. We have huge magnetometers, x-ray machines, skilled people at our ports who can look for drugs or, you know, the suspicion that somebody is moving drugs in. We don't have those advantages at the border when there's no border patrol agent there to stop the people. But we have seen an uptick in seizures by border patrol of fentanyl this year. And again, we're seeing that even though border patrol is so overstressed Nine out of 10 agents aren't on the line. Right, right. Is there one other development this year that you wanted to highlight 
John, do you have uh, anything in mind? Uh, yeah, and actually, I have a question for Art. Maybe he can okay. can talk about uh, my th- my bigger picture concern is this. I listened to the White House press briefings, and their press secretary's response repeatedly is, "Well, the Republicans don't have a plan. What's their plan?" But it's such a ridiculous statement because what's happening on well, the board. It's not that out of character with this press secretary. So. I, I suppose so. <laughs> um, but the whole White House seems to be okay with that message. And the reality is, as we all know, what's happening on the board right now is a direct response to their policies. You don't enforce the law. People respond to messaging. We've said this for years. I remember under the Bush administration, the Border Patrol would report an influx in illegal immigration when Bush would talk about amnesty. People think they should get to the U.S. I was talking to an officer yesterday who said one field officer told him that they were in the process of lining aliens up outside of their field office, you know, preparing for processing them. And he overheard one of them speaking on their cell phone to someone back in the homeland. And the conversation was, you should definitely pack your bags, hurry up and get here. They're letting us all in. Like Everything's free here. That was the message. <laughs> and so people are hearing that. Just to give some real numbers, I do want to give some removal numbers just really briefly because something just did come out uh, at ICE. You know, in 2020, there were over 185, almost 186,000 removals. This is deportations. That's the word for them now. In 2021, it was a little over 59,000. And in 2022, fiscal year, it was just a little over 69,000. That has a real consequence. And I guess the question that I have for Art is sort of a constitutional question. How, how far can this go? Can an executive branch agency just completely ignore huge swaths of federal law, even in a different context. And if this is allowed to stand, what does it mean for other agencies? Like the, I met with the IRS while I was over at ICE. We were trying to get them to help with some identity theft uh, issues. And the response that I got from the IRS was, well, we don't have enough agents. You know, we, we can't do this type of work. Congress won't fund us. In other words, it's sort of a prioritization of their own, if you will. If this is allowed to stand, how many other areas of law can future administrations just ignore? And, and does the Supreme Court understand this constitutional question, or is it going to be entirely focused on APA-type process? But isn't that what the Supreme Court actually, one of the justices during the recent oral arguments said, if the detention mandate can be ignored, then can't any other mandate be ignored if it's not really a mandate? Basically, it's like Clinton might have said, it depends on what the meaning of shall is. Right. And under the Clinton administration, what they said was, well, I guess we have to pay for these detention beds, but we don't actually have to use them. Right. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. So what about that oral arguments issue that actually came up? Literally, the question John just asked. Yeah. And the, you know, the issue was raised. Can't a future administration simply ignore the Environmental Protection Act or Title VII or another provision of law? Our entire system is based upon the constitutional mandate that the executive shall take care that the laws be enforced. We have an executive right now that isn't actually enforcing the laws. And so during the Supreme Court argument, the question became, well, if the executive doesn't enforce the laws and if we can't review this, then, you know, what remedies are going to be available? And the Solicitor General said, well, Congress can use the power of the purse to make the executive's life very difficult. Miserable. Isn't that what she said? Miserable. Which was a shocking admission by the person that appears before the Supreme Court for the administration. So, yeah, 
at the end of the day, the Supreme Court prefers to just pass on these things and leave them as political issues. But I think that we're going to be in a situation soon where the Supreme Court is actually going to have to interpret the take care clause, which it's not, never done. But with an incoming Republican Congress, I have a feeling that they are going to take the solicitor general at her word, that they will use the power of the purse in the area of parole to not fund the ability of the executive branch to grant parole. Sure, it's in the law. You just can't spend any money on it. And if the executive does that, that's a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act. That's a big deal that the Supreme Court is more than willing to take up. So, yeah, they're, you know, clean air, clean water. You know, you could have a future administration that just wouldn't enforce the law. And the Biden administration is setting themselves and progressives up for a future regime at which all of those laws could be. Ignored. I mean, pick area of law. That's why I bring up the IRS. Could the IRS just say, hey, you know what? Anyone making more than $200,000 a year, don't worry about paying taxes. We're not going to audit you. We just don't have the resources for it. That would be perfectly acceptable by this administration's standards in my mind, if that's not addressed. And it, it seems to me that's why what you're talking about really is a basic constitutional question. And this is the administration through immigration actions is kind of creating a broader constitutional crisis, potentially, depending on what Congress's response is. Because it seems to me the executive has a responsibility or the executive doesn't really have the authority to just do whatever the heck he wants until the Supreme Court yanks his chain or Congress denies funding. Because that seems to be what they're, I mean, the president, even in this other era, like the uh, student loan area. Now, that's not our area, but it's relevant here because the president said, yeah, it's probably illegal, but, you know, we're going to do it and see what we can get away with. You know, that's not stable, it seems to me. It's not constitutionally stable. And it actually may be good in a kind of worse is better sense that the administration is pushing the envelope on immigration, but will force, like you said, our Supreme Court to finally address this take care clause. And what does that actually mean? It may get the court to address the take care clause, but we have to remember in the next Congress, I don't think we're going to see a lot of control through the appropriations process or maybe not as much as we would like because there is divided control with the House in the hands of Republicans and and the Senate in the hands of Democrats. But I think if you look out longer, I, I don't think it's going to be satisfying for anyone for Congress to micromanage that much through appropriations. I think what's really going to potentially happen is an updating of these laws to reduce the discretion available right. to the executive branch. And, and that's when that decision on how far a president can go in ignoring the laws that Congress writes, that's where that's going to you know really get tested yeah, is down the line true. when this lack of enforcement of our laws and our legal immigration system is going to result in a much tighter system going forward. And that's, you know, somebody at some point is going to want to push back on that. Yeah. I mean, basically, this is really is glaring in the issue of immigration. I assume this is the kind of thing that comes up in any area of law. But the executive branch has shown that it cannot be trusted with discretion in immigration. And unfortunately, there has to be some discretion. For instance, in parole, the, my favorite story was a Russian cosmonaut was on the International Space Station and was returning on our space shuttle back when we had a space shuttle, but he had no visa. He was going to land in California. There's no visa. Well, that kind of guy, I mean, that's what parole is for. 
The guy isn't going to stay here. He's going to catch a plane and go home. But you don't have time to do a visa interview, you know, in space. Well, there does need to be wiggle room. The problem is that successive presidents have shown they literally cannot be trusted with wiggle room. And so that's why Congress is going to have to do things like spell out the specific reasons you can give parole, not the kind of broader urgent humanitarian concern or issues of national benefit or whatever. Because, and I think the reason for this is that there was more consensus about what these words meant in the past. And now there isn't. And so Congress is going to have to just get a lot more specific about what this means and when you can do these things. It is so damaging to us because it's not just any area of law, this would be a problem. But we're talking about something that's the basis of our sovereignty, our citizenship, nationhood. This is very, very damaging to our democracy. So let's um, just quickly go around and if anybody's got predictions for the next year, Art? Well, I'm actually a lot more bullish than uh, Jessica is with respect to the appropriations process because of something having nothing to do with immigration, and that is the return of earmarks. So sure, you know, in a perfect world, would progressive Democrats be willing to sign off on a funding bill that took away all the money from uh, Secretary Mayorkas if he doesn't enforce the border? Probably not. But if that means that you're not going to get, for example, the Robert Byrd Highway to the uh, Robert Byrd Tech Center in your state, then you might be a whole lot more willing to sign off on it. Oversight's going to be huge in the next Congress, too. Speaker McCarthy, Speaker Presumptive McCarthy, if he comes in, is going to be beholden to a lot of people on his right who are very serious about the border. Oversight's going to be huge. Okay. Jessica, you have any uh, predictions? Yeah, I think that one of the other less reported issues during the past year was what the states were doing frustrated in the absence of federal action on enforcement. It was more than just busing migrants to sanctuary jurisdictions, but Texas has invested millions and millions of dollars in its taxpayer money to send law enforcement officers down to the border to help the Border Patrol and by interdicting not only illegal aliens crossing, but also some of those drugs. And they're looking at what more they can do with their local arrest authority. And we have Florida that has spent a lot of time developing ways to push back on the Biden administration's lack of enforcement in terms of investigating smugglers, blocking state child welfare agencies from taking contracts to resettle unaccompanied minors and other things that can be done by states to not play along with this mass resettlement of people. It gets harder when the federal government starts issuing work permits and kind of quasi-legal status to a lot of the illegal crossers. But this is what states are going to have to think about is how they're going to pay for this influx and how they're going to deal with it in schools and the hospitals and the criminal justice system, but also what they can do to minimize the impact of this lawlessness at the border on their taxpayers and on their public safety. Okay, interesting. So uh, Art predicts actual, you know, real fights over appropriations, which I think is accurate. Jessica, you're predicting extra the step up in state activity to try to deal with this. Uh, any thoughts, uh, John, on your part, predictions? Well, I'm struggling with the general optimistic nature that I have <laughs> uh, versus what I know about Washington, D.C. 
My prediction is that the Republicans will focus too much, almost exclusively, on border issues and funding CBP, not realizing that that will have not enough of an effect on the illegal alien flow. They'll miss a lot of the interior enforcement, which is what we desperately need to send the message that if you come here, you lie to Border Patrol, you you have faulty asylum claims, you will be sent home. And as a result, illegal immigration will continue. It's not going to be pretty. And I don't see it stopping any time soon. At least not in the next two years. Uh, Maybe with a new administration it could, but that'll be next year's end of year show. We'll see what happens. So anyway, thank you, Art Arthur. Jessica Vaughn and John Fury on our staff here at CIS for this year-end roundup. That's it for this week, and that's it for 2022. This is obviously the last episode of the year. I hope everyone has a safe and enjoyable new year, and we will be back next week for the first of our 2023 episodes. 